Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 6. And we are continuing our way through this gospel. We are not quite done with this discourse about Jesus being the true bread. We've spent three weeks on it so far, and this will be the fourth week that we've looked at this. Next week we will look at how Jesus now dealt with his disciples as a result of this difficult teaching that he has given to them. So this is still the day after the feeding of the 5,000, which was in effect 15 to 25,000 people who gathered on that day and saw Jesus do the miraculous by feeding all of them from five loaves and two small fish. The large crowds have gathered to get more of this free bread in hopes of seeing more miracles take place. They're focused on the physical blessings that Jesus can bring. His works, his, heal, his works of healings and the miracles that he has performed. And now this free bread has stoked their fervor to an all-time high. And so Jesus is explaining to the Jews who he is, the true bread out of heaven, the living bread from heaven, the bread that is superior to the manna that came by God from heaven to the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness. He's been telling them that this true bread is spiritual food, it is eternal, it is what satisfies the needs in the soul of man, and to receive it, one must come to him, they must repent and believe in him, and lay it all down and place their faith in him and in him alone. If one will do that, then he will possess eternal life. The Jews are hung up on his professed identity as one who has come out of heaven. After all, he's grown up in Galilee. They've seen him. They know his families, his family, and they are incensed that he would have this claim that he's actually come from heaven. So in verse 51, which we're going to look at very briefly as a means of introduction, we kind of ended on that last week. This is the fifth time in the discourse that Jesus has referred to himself as the living bread. So John 6:51, Jesus says again, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus makes this startling proclamation that this bread that he provides is in fact his very flesh, his life for the salvation of man from every nation, every culture, every ethnic background, not just for the Jews. So as we think about Jesus' presentation of himself as the bread of life and understanding that bread is a staple food, not only in the Middle East, but also in many, many parts of the world, John MacArthur makes five suggestions, or suggests five parallels, rather, about the eating of food and the appropriation of spiritual life. So the first thing that he states is that food is useless if it is not eaten. You can be as hungry as hungry can be, malnourished and starving, and have a banquet of food, and that food will do you no good unless you eat of it. And so it is with spiritual truth. Spiritual truth does us no good at all if it is not internalized into our lives. Merely knowing it academically or intellectually is not enough. We must allow the truth of God's Word to internalize within our souls for it to do any good for us. Number two, eating is prompted by hunger. The eating of food is prompted by hunger. Those who are full are not interested in food. In the same way, 
Sinners who are filled with satisfaction that their sin provides them have no hunger for spiritual things. That is why you can share life-changing truth with a lost person and he is fully disinterested because he has no hunger for it. When God awakens us to our lost condition, however, the hunger for forgiveness and deliverance and peace and hope and love and joy will then drive us to the bread of life. And that is who Jesus is. Thirdly, we are what we eat. The food people eat becomes a part of them through the body's digestive system. So it is spiritually. People may admire Christ. They may be impressed at His teaching. They may be amazed at His miracles, even saddened by His death on the cross. But it's not until they appropriate Him by faith do they become one with Him. Fourthly, eating involves trust. No one knowingly eats tainted or spoiled food. When you go to a restaurant, you assume you have faith in the fact that the food you're going to be served is actually good and it is healthy and it's not going to make you sick. The very act of eating implies that the faith implies faith that this food is actually edible. The metaphor of eating the bread of life implies believing in Jesus and coming to him by faith. Number five, eating is personal. No one can eat a meal for you. There is no such thing as eating by proxy, neither is there anything called salvation by proxy. You must eat for yourself. You must come to Christ for yourself. No one can do that for you. Psalm 49.7 says, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. So we must appropriate the bread of life as individuals to receive this salvation and to have this gift of eternal life and live forever, which Jesus is drilling home to these Jews repeatedly in this discourse. Let's pick up in verse 52 and go through 59 and then we'll talk about this. Then the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he spoke to the Jews at the synagogue in Capernaum. Well, there's some obvious confusion as we look at the question that the Jewish leaders ask Jesus in response to the continuation of this teaching. Verse 52, the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give his flesh to eat? That word argue here is a very t- strong term. It means intense emotion. It's anger. It is outrage. The murmuring that we talked about a couple of weeks ago has now grown into a full-blown argument amongst the Jews. They are incensed at this notion of Jesus not only coming down from heaven, but now this idea that they are to eat of His flesh and they are to drink of His blood. And so the, the question here is, 
cannibalism really? Is this what they really think Jesus is talking about? In D.A. Carson's commentary, he, re- he makes a mention of this and says that even a dullard can understand that Jesus is not talking about cannibalism. They are so literally minded and so focused on the physical part of life that they can't understand that this is simply a physical illustration of spiritual truth. How in the world could Jesus give His flesh and His blood to the world to eat and to drink. He was talking about the spiritual food that is in Him as the one sent from heaven, the true bread of heaven, who has life in Himself and desires to give that life to us. Their unbelief keeps them from understanding the spiritual nature of this truth, and they have missed the point over and over and over again that Jesus is the spiritual bread of life He is not the physical food that they are thinking He is making a claim to be. Now, in the remaining verses, Jesus is going to make some promises to us, to those who receive Him as the bread of life. Jesus didn't make the teaching any easier for them, and He wasn't going to cater to their unbelief. He wasn't going to soften the requirement. He wasn't going to try to explain in even simpler terms about what it means to eat of His flesh and to drink of His blood. Verse 53 Jesus said to them, truly, truly, and we've seen this regularly in this discourse, which means it's the double amen, it's the solemn vow. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourself. So He has added to this strange notion of eating His flesh, this shocking requirement of drinking His blood. Now for the Jew... To drink blood or to eat meat with the blood still in it was strictly prohibited in the Old Testament law. Leviticus 17.10 says that if and any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. So, blood was to be drained from the animal. It was to be spilt on the ground. The Israelites were not allowed to ingest any blood that came from an animal because life is in the blood and the taking of a life is typically violent and the, and the blood is what makes atonement. And so God had given this restriction about eating meat with blood or consuming blood The Jews that Jesus is speaking to are well aware of this prohibition. And for them to hear him talk about eating his flesh and now drinking his blood was way beyond anything that they would have ever imagined that a Jew would say, much less be willing to participate in. But Jesus is clearly speaking of his physical death and the sacrifice as a means of providing eternal life. Now, Jesus is going to make four promises to those who will spiritually eat the bread of life. These promises are a reiteration of what Jesus has already said throughout this discourse. Number one, no Jesus, no life. It's as simple as that. You know, we struggle with wanting to add something to salvation by grace through faith. We want to add something to it. Shouldn't I do something? Aren't I expected to do something? Am I supposed to give something? Is there some set of do's and don'ts and rules and regulations that I have to follow 
Because if it was that way, we would feel a lot better about salvation because we could say, I have done this for myself. Look what I have accomplished. But Jesus says in verse 53, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. Man has no spiritual life in himself. We are brought into this world spiritually dead. We are not the origin of spiritual life. We can't create spiritual life. And we cannot sustain spiritual life. Salvation is through Jesus alone. After all, as we'll look at way down the road, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Christianity is incredibly exclusive. There's only one path, there's only one door, there's only one way, and that is through Jesus Himself. There's nothing that man can do that will give to him the spiritual life that he desperately needs Only Jesus can provide that. And as we look through the Gospel of John and the I Am statements that Jesus will make, particularly, it is a singular route to the Father, and that is through Jesus. So the first promise is no Jesus, no life. The second one is with Jesus, eternal life. Verse 54, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, it is about impossible for us to read this verse and to not at least think about communion, the Lord's Supper. But that does not mean that this is what Jesus has in mind in this teaching, or what John's purpose in recording these words was. We touched on this a little bit last week, and I want to look at this a little bit more today as we deal with this verse. Now, we understand the elements of communion, the bread and the juice or the wine, depending upon the church you're in, we, we understand these elements to be a symbolic reminder of the sacrifice of Christ. Now, not everybody understands it that way. This is one of the passages that Roman Catholics use to teach the doctrine of transubstantiation. This is an important distinction for us to be aware of. The doctrine of transubstantiation says that the elements of communion, the bread and the juice or the wine, become the body and the blood of Christ. Somehow through Mass, there is this miraculous transformation that takes place in the bread and in the cup, and they are actually made into the literal body and blood of Jesus. Catholic theologian Ludwig Ott writes these words. which you listen very closely. The body and the blood of Christ together with His soul and divinity, and therefore the whole Christ, are truly present in the Eucharist. That's what they call communion. Let me read that again. The body and the blood of Christ together with His soul and divinity, and therefore the whole Christ, are truly present in the Eucharist. That means that the bread and the cup contain His soul and His divinity or His deity. This is one of the reasons why in Catholic churches and those that believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation will never discard any remaining parts of the bread or the cup. They will instead eat it themselves. Roman Roman Catholicism teaches that the elements of communion are miraculously transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ, and to partake of the elements is to take Christ into your physical body. This is why communion is so important within the Roman Catholic Church. It is necessary for your salvation. If the doctrine of transubstantiation is correct, then all one needs to do to be saved is to observe 
communion. Now, Catholics don't say that, but that is, in effect, the result of ingesting the soul and the divinity of Christ in the elements in the, in the Lord's Supper. So if this is true, then communion or the Eucharist would give one immortality. There's no need for faith in Christ or in the finished work of the cross, which is a clear contradiction to what Jesus has already said about the need to come to him and believe in him. The verbs here in the Greek are called, they're in what's called the aorist tense, and that indicates it is a one-time eating of the flesh and a one-time drinking of the blood, not a continual or a recurring eating as believed to be necessary in the Catholic Mass. As I was reading and researching and, and looking at some of this, I came across this post and it said, I am a Catholic and I was trying to explain to my friend the doctrine of transubstantiation and the more I explained it, the more confused they became. That will, yeah, it's pretty confusing. So Jesus actually becomes the bread, his body, and actually becomes the blood and his soul and his divinity. How does that happen exactly? And the official response is, well, there's many parts of our faith that are difficult for people to understand. So this is what's mixed into this passage, which is not Jesus' intent or John's intent in the way this is written, spoken, and recorded. So when you look at what's already been said in this discourse, in verse 40, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. So the result of verse 40 and its spiritual parallel in verse 54 is the same. The result is eternal life and resurrection. In verse 40, it says, Beholding and believing in His Son will result in eternal life. And in verse 54, it's the eating and the drinking of His blood. So if Jesus is implying that this is about the Lord's Supper, and if He's implying that you can partake of the Lord's Supper and don't need faith, then in just a matter of our 14 verses, He's completely contradicted Himself. So it follows then that the eating and drinking in verse 54 are parallel to the beholding and believing of verse 40. With Jesus, you have eternal life. If you eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, that one-time occurrence when you come to him by faith, then he will give to you eternal life. And that is number three. With Jesus, we have the resurrection. Second part of verse 54, and I will raise him up on the last day. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago because, remember, this is a reiteration of what Jesus has already said. And so resurrection to eternal life is the greatest hope a Christian has. That this life that I've lived for Christ is not all that there is. There is a future hope and a future glory for me with the Father in eternity. It is seeing Him as He really is. It's enjoying the fullness of His glory and His majesty. It's forever being removed from the presence of sin, the ability to worship Him in absolute completeness and apart from this promise and future reality, the gospel message is empty and meaningless. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul dealt with as he wrote to the church in Corinth. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Moreover, if, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. You see, Jesus' resurrection is directly linked to our own resurrection at some point in the future. If He has not been raised, then we will not be raised. And if He will not be raised, and we will not be raised, then Jesus has been dishonest in His discourse to the Jews about Him being the bread of life. The greatest hope you and I have is the, is, and the hope is not a wishful thinking, but it is the confidence that this life ends and we are forever ushered into the presence of God for an eternity, something that will last forever and forever. Fifth, the fourth promise here, with Jesus we have a permanent union. Verse 55, For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Physical food, including the manna from heaven, which Jesus has dealt with as the Jews placed a lot of their hope in Moses. This manna from heaven had a certain value, but like the food we eat, it needs to be consumed every day, day after day, in order to continue to provide value to our lives. But Jesus is true food, and He is true drink, and these provide eternal life. The promise speaks of our being satisfied in our union with Him. When we have come to Christ, we've given our lives to Christ, when we've experienced salvation by grace through faith, He will truly meet the deepest needs and the deepest desires of our lives because He satisfies the souls of man like nothing else can. No more spiritual hunger, no more spiritual thirst, no more wandering, no more wondering, but we have this union with Christ that will last forever. In contrast to all the substitutes that are out there, Jesus is the only one that will truly satisfy. Now, this thought of abiding that John uses here is an important one throughout his gospel. Not only in his gospel, but also in his writings, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It reminds us that the believer does not enter into a temporary state of fellowship with the Lord but a permanent one, one that will never go away, one that will never expire, one that will never be taken away. We'll look at this down the road. But in John chapter 15, eight times, John will use the word abide in verses 4 through 8 to talk about this mutual indwelling that is communicated in this idea of abiding. To abide in Christ means that the believer remains in Jesus. It means that we continue to be identified with Him. It continues in our saving faith resulting in transformation of life. We abide in Him by maintaining our relationship with Him, maintaining our identity with Him, being transformed like He is. That For Jesus to abide in us... It means that the believer 
will always, that Jesus will always identify himself with the believer in help and blessing in life and with the personal presence of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. One writer says it like this, we are the forever people of God. We are the forever people of God. Jesus in these last two verses restates his divine authority and his divine mission that he has said over and over in this discourse. Verse 57 and 58, As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. And so Jesus repeats it. He is the source of life. We must appropriate him into our lives by faith. We are to trust in his sacrificial death on the cross as an atonement for our sin. And this idea cannot be any more clear than it is right here. Over and over and over, Jesus has communicated to these Jewish people the truth of who he really is and what man must do in order to get to the Father to have eternal life, and that is to very simply come to him, come to him and partake of the spiritual food that is found in Christ. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me, please? Well, Father, this um, last part of this passage is just a reminder of everything that Jesus has said. And as we think about this gift of salvation that has been provided for us, we should be completely overwhelmed at the thought that you have sent your one and only Son to come to this world to die in our place, to pay the penalty for our sin. We are to come to him by faith. He alone is the source of of spiritual life. And apart from him, we have no hope of getting to the Father. But as we think about this word abiding that is introduced here, and our responsibility to stay connected to you, to remain in you, to serve you, to obey you, to love you, to follow you. I pray that you would help us to recognize that that's the natural result of our salvation. It's not the condition for it. I pray, Father, that you would grow in each of our hearts a greater desire and burden to follow you more closely, to give back to you what is rightfully yours, our very lives. Father, speak to us in this time as we sing, as we meditate on the truth of your word on the great gift of salvation. Would you draw us close to yourself? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, stand with me, if you will, as we sing.